You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel and I'm here again with Ben Simon for our August recording of the Simulcast Journal Club. How are you, Ben? I am very good. Thank you, Vic. And uh, this is actually the fourth anniversary for us of the very first Simulcast Journal Club. Four years ago, I think, was the August episode. Is that what those flowers were that got <laughs> Thank you, Ben. I was hoping you'd connect the dots, but apparently it took till now. Yeah. <laughs> well, happy anniversary, us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And same to you. It's been a lovely four years. It has been in so many ways. Before we get into our uh, articles for this month, I was also just going to mention a new Simulcast initiative. This is Simulcast 101, and it's an initiative put together by one of our co-producers, Jessica Stokes Parrish, in conjunction with a protege uh, of ours, Charlotte Alexander, which is going to do a little bit of a short, sharp dive into some of those topics that might be for the new-to-simulation provider, little 10-minute podcasts on some of the key topics like pre-briefing, like scenario design and a range of other topics. And so pretty soon we're going to release a little teaser to say more about it, but I'm looking forward to it, Ben. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to having that as part of our suite and I guess um, as a useful kind of go-to tag that uh, people who are new to Sim can uh, search for and, and find in our podcasts. Absolutely, and there'll be plenty of cross referencing with the existing resources we've got so that is great uh well ben why don't you jump in and tell us about the paper of the month and uh what our colleagues had to say about it yeah absolutely so this month we looked at curriculum design with a paper entitled development of an insight to simulation based continuing professional development curriculum in pediatric emergency medicine and it was by james leung et al and published recently in advances in simulation in 2020 so the article basically describes uh, the fact that there's a lack of structured professional development curricula for practicing uh, pediatric emergency physicians and really highlights the contrast between trainees in specialty programs who often have uh, a very developed training curriculum from their pathway versus specialists who are essentially sort of uh, expected to drive their own learning independently without a lot of structure. And in response to this, the authors aim to generate an interprofessional continuous professional development curriculum uh, for simulation for practicing pediatric emergency physicians in a tertiary hospital using what they describe as a deliberative approach and Kern's six-step method of curriculum development. So the methods that they did basically was they took a list of 94 possible pediatric emergency presentations and procedures and then generated from that an 18 scenario curriculum. And they took opinions from physicians, from hospital leadership, from interprofessional colleagues and experts to systematically rank those items uh, using a prioritization matrix to generate priority scores. So if you look in the paper at the matrix, which is included in the article, there's kind of a scoring system out of five as high to least priority for different skill sets and presentations. And it's arranged into columns such as the PEM physician's opinion or hospital leadership's opinion, etc. And then you kind of total them all up and and score them to map out the conditions from highest to least numerical score. So you can get uh, theoretically at least a, a sum 
what more mathematical ranking of all of the issues based on the weight that you put on different groups' opinions. And the physicians whom the curriculum was designed for then uh, looked at the curricula and uh, answered an interim survey, and 90% of them found educational value in the curriculum, and most of them found things in there that they didn't identify they would need to learn but appreciated that that was brought into the curricula. So within the author's rationale for their approach, and as a PEM physician myself, I think they highlight some great points on the current flaws we have with our senior medical professional development systems. And firstly, that there's a lack of structure. And certainly, uh, given my somewhat cynical lack of faith in people's ability to spontaneously drive and regulate our own development, uh, I think it's quite astounding that there's this kind of hierarchical assumption that suddenly because you're a specialist in a particular field, you simultaneously level up your ability to drive your own expertise. I'm seeing a couple of nods from you there, Vic. Any thoughts? Yes, I agree. I always wonder about self-regulated learning uh, and self-determined learning, whether it's at the junior level or the senior level, to be honest, because I think it's very hard for us to know what we don't know. And, of course, we will tend to study or learn what we like uh, and our perceptions of what we need to do and what the patients or systems need us to do are often widely disparate. So one of my take-homes from this article right from the get-go was this concept of the matrix. Now, whether they've got the exact elements in the matrix right course not it's it's not perfect there this is the start but i think the concept is just fantastic yeah agreed um so look the authors highlight this ad hoc case creation system and argue that opportunities for space repetition and deliberate practice and whatnot uh would be of more value and so uh they're really keen to develop this program basically and they propose that conceptually a similar process could be used to create an established curriculum for either alternative specialty fields or uh, broader hospital systems and argue that their pragmatic approach indicates that it's actually pretty feasible to do and not a Terrifically expensive. So uh, in terms of the Journal Club discussion this month, I would have to say that things uh, took a while to warm up. And it does make me think that in some ways, uh, at a meta level, while we're talking about learning about things that we should know versus things that we want to learn about, uh, I think that maybe talking about curriculum design might not necessarily be at the top of the page in every simulationist's dream journal, Vic. Um, I think that's right. I think they hate going to meetings, which is sometimes how curriculum development manifests, uh, but also because I think it's probably more idiosyncratic than people give credit for. Like it's fine to look at your Kern six-step model and read needs analysis, but that's obviously wholly inadequate for really the granular level of detail that has been done here in terms of using a matrix for their needs analysis. Uh, but as you say, you never really quite get the same sign-ups for those medical education seminars on curriculum development as you do on uh, great fun stuff like virtual reality. So another case of needing to relabel them as sex and airway emergencies? Absolutely. That was your tip. <laughs> That'll come up later, don't worry. Um, but you know uh, by the end of the month we had some really lovely engagement from some regular simulcast friends like Sarah Janssens, Ben Lawton and Susan Ella as well as some new participants so Jane Shakiro and Lon Setnick thank you so much uh, for participating Um, and I'd also I think you couldn't start talking about this discussion without mentioning the dedication of the primary author James Leong who 
was also our expert this month. And he came along uh, as our expert to represent the paper, but he engaged it with every comment that was made, uh, responded to every critique in a really respectful and receptive way. And I'm really grateful for his attendance. And I think it, it reminded me a lot of, um, I think Anne Mullen was the other expert who came along and just gave her all uh, a while back. So I, I really appreciated the time that James took this month. In terms of the discussion, the themes to me, or at least the big three that struck struck me the most were firstly, the big one, which was that there was concern that this paper proposed a multidisciplinary curriculum, but was informed primarily by a needs assessment of one component of the healthcare team, i.e. the medical component. Um, there was appreciation and exploration of the use of the matrix itself as a, a way of being a little bit more scientific about the way we approach a curriculum and how we weigh things. And then thirdly, uh, there was acknowledgement that there's this tension between educational and translational simulation needs and design, and that while there's some synergy, there's also some opportunity cost when trying to achieve both things. So let's hear probably the biggest point of critique first, which was that designing a multidisciplinary program to address the learning needs of the medical team is in some ways, uh, what's the right word, um, an oxymoron, I guess, in, the, in that word. So Susan Eller, I think, described her concern nicely in the statement uh, saying that when she read, we hypothesized that we could generate an interprofessional CPD simulation curriculum for practicing pediatric emergency medicine physicians, her initial reaction was discordance, as it sounded like the authors were developing an IPE scenario for the physicians and not the other groups. And this was reinforced by the robust description of the needs assessment and how they surveyed the physician group. And Vic, you yourself sort of echoed this in your comments with saying, I would feel uneasy if the content of my interprofessional simulation program was driven so overtly by the curricular needs of the doctors. And obviously that's not the intent and probably not even the practice of the institution described but that, you know, I'll worry that this would send a powerful but unintended message about what the simulation program is for. Um, and James, I would say, heard that critique and responded to it and did, did counterbalance that by saying that um, having a case-based final curriculum did allow scaffolding of learning objectives for nursing staff within that same framework. And he stated that in our current healthcare system setup, care that can be provided is still largely established by physician's scope of practice, i.e. what the PEMDOC can do before we call the surgeon for a blunt abdominal trauma, as well as the fact that simulation delivery in his service is often co-facilitated and debriefed with medical and nursing staff. Uh, ben Lawton argued that, on the other hand, the process that was described is in some ways a pilot and that realistically, in terms of the process that was described in the literature, it made sense as long as we then repeat it with other disciplines and make sure that we then make some kind of super matrix to mix those all up together and, and uh, establish what educational needs of the other people who are uh, engaging with the simulations. Any further comments there from you, Ben? Yeah, I think this is very tricky because I think we see a lot of simulation that is designed for one professional group and others tag along and the honesty with which that is portrayed is variable. There's nothing wrong with having an all-doctor simulation thing and having nurses as confederate if that is what you say you're doing. But I think if uh, 
your plan is to have team-based learning, then I don't understand why you have medical learning objectives and nursing learning objectives. They've got to be team-based objectives or else that's not the purpose. So, you know, obviously we're all influenced by what we do and my program I would like to think is truly about having the team-based objectives. But nothing against people that want to make it uni professional and it's simpler and it probably is more effective for any given profession if that's what you do. I think it was the discordance that Susan was talking about that was the tricky bit. Now, I'm not sure about that scope of practice thing, but I will think more about it because that's uh, something I hadn't considered. Yeah, look, I, I, I... I think it's a very fair critique um, and I think, you know, we've talked a lot about uh, hidden curriculums and cultural compression on simulcast and um, I, I think it was well brought up and enunciated and, and I think that was that was still heard and considered in the feedback to James. Um, moving on to the second thing was that there was a lot of appreciation and kind of exploration and, and critiquing of the matrix itself. So Sarah Jansen started the discussion this month and she sounded particularly nerdily excited by the amount of graphs uh, and a little bit envious, but uh, similar to your thoughts in a couple of ways, Vic, she did acknowledge that it was clearly a lot of work without a huge amount of examples that were thought to not be present if you just sort of spontaneously suggested a curriculum in a less rigorous process. And so I guess there was this uh, question of how much did this achieve that wouldn't have been achieved via a less rigorous process while still admiring that process in and of itself. Um, We explored that there still appeared to be a fairly strong focus on resuscitative skill sets over other core skills, such as dealing with challenging communication and supervising residents and things, uh, but also appreciated that overall taking that matrix approach was really a nice start and thought likely to at least partially address that conflict between what learners like and what learners need. Um, And interestingly, today on Twitter, I was reading a a tweet from Aidan Barron, I think, on um, what if you could have an emergency medicine superpower and extra subspecialty, what would it be? And everyone, like the vast majority, chose anaesthetics. Um, and then there was like 15% choosing psych. And I was like, why would you, you know, we have anaesthetists and uh, we're choosing to train ourselves better at the fun stuff or the exciting stuff and the dramatic stuff and not necessarily training ourselves to meet the needs of the community who are actually presenting to the emergency department with vast swathes of mental illness. So I think this is a widespread challenge between what we like and what we need to learn. Yeah, all right. Well, I'll admit it. I saw that tweet too and I voted and I put anaesthetics. You monster. (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to Simulcast. What we're also talking about, though, is what is the return on investment of spending all that time uh, creating this curriculum? And I agree that it's hard to demonstrate if you just made it up. But at the same time, it would have that if we thought that people would take this and we could extrapolate it across the country and people would have to do all that hard work. The reality is the NIH problem, not invented here. So everybody has to create their own. So one of the problems with doing this is that I'm not sure it prevents us having to replicate the same process elsewhere. I haven't heard that acronym before, but I like it. It uh, speaks to me. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, there there was a lot of appreciation for it and uh, some also some very sort of specific 
critique on how it could be done better. And I'd say, again, James was really receptive and, and, and focused on the fact that this was an iterative process and, and in some ways a, um, a model that hopefully would be improved on in the future. And I'd probably argue as well that it's always harder to do the first time you do it and then you get a lot more efficient at these things once they feel a bit less clunky and once you're used to how they run and can roll them out more smoothly. The last point, I think, was this, this acknowledgement of the tension between educational and translational simulation needs and design. And I think particularly because this program was presented as an in-situ simulation program, there was a strong emphasis on individual educational goals for the curriculum, uh, which kind of occurs in contrast to a translational sim perspective, which would focus on specific targeted patient outcomes. And while there's often educational synergy in InSightU Sim, I think the group acknowledged that there's also opportunity costs in prioritising one over the other, uh, and there was some concern voiced about that. Um, Lon Setnik joined us for the first time and he made a number of wonderful contributions exploring the cost and benefit of revealing the cases ahead of time, some fine-tuning of the matrix itself, and in particular concern even just looking at the educational curriculum as it was and looking at the sheer volume of content that needed to be covered and the fact that that would lead to these sims being run once every sort of 12 to 18 months uh, and, and appropriately questioning how feasible that would be for many services and how feasible that would be, um, as um, Jane Shakiro mentioned, in terms of uh, how much sustainable change is that going to lead into a, in a specific department if we're trying to hit it to fulfill a curriculum as opposed to create change yeah i think this purpose is always really hard isn't it because if you look at how the topics are listed you kind of think well why are they doing them in situ because you can do an umbilical vessel catheterization everywhere so why do we need to run the inborn errors of metabolism scenario in our resuscitation bay but of course what I suspect is that part of their purpose is also to uh, test their resus room and, and their ability to work within it and drop drugs quickly. It's just that it's hard when you actually um, write a curriculum to map it and capture it. And so there's often does need to be a matrix for the curriculum itself where it sort of crosses into different domains of practice, whereas one of the problems of listing things by clinical presentation is that you miss that opportunity. Absolutely agreed. So in terms of our experts' commentary this month, uh, we got to very much experience James the whole month as opposed to just at the end. And again, I really thank him for that. I actually met, first met James at uh, IMSH um, in San Antonio uh, when we sat next together at an impacts table and I was just struck by A, how nice he was and B, how nice everyone from that impacts team was. It was a really lovely experience. Um, and so it was great to uh, be able to collaborate with him again. Uh, he will, we will have his uh, expert commentary available in our summary uh, when this is uploaded and downloadable on the PDF. Yes, sounds excellent, Ben. I would concur with you about James. I met him in Calgary when I was there and excellent. And the work that he's done here, I think, really gives us lots to think about. So looking forward to more from the group. You're listening to Simulcast. But, yes, let's move on to our other papers, and I've got three this week, some more serious than others. Uh, but the first one probably will be regarded as a bit of a landmark paper for simulation uh, relating to COVID-19, and this is from Advances in Simulation by Marette Dubé and her colleagues. 
COVID-19 pandemic preparation using simulation for systems-based learning to prepare the largest healthcare workforce and system in Canada. And really the background to this paper, as we were just chatting about, is there's lots of COVID sim going on and indeed lots getting published about it. Um, Short reports, descriptions of how people have prepared for and dealt with COVID using simulation. And so this team seeks to describe the process they went through, uh, which I have to say is on a scale that is certainly not described anywhere that I've read, uh, and which really speaks, I think, to a key theme about the need for integration between health services and simulation if they're going to be successful, Uh, and also an idea about being aware of the health service itself as to how um, system-based simulation can have an impact. So they uh, really, and they described their process, and it's probably good to get the acronyms out because I know you're pretty keen to learn more of them then. This is their eSIM, which stands for Educate, Simulate, Innovate and Motivate. Uh, and their central eSIM provincial response team. And uh, this is in set in Alberta province in Canada, where they also have a very integrated health system. And I'm just going to come back to that um, further on down. But I'm just going to describe their aim. They said the need that they have is the identified need in the literature is the ability to proactively identify systems issues while testing new pandemic processes in real time and sharing these organisational learnings and system-level outcomes on a mass scale to both anticipate and plan for COVID. Now, even before I go on, Ben, that's just an unimaginable kind of aim, isn't it? Uh, Normally I'd say yes, but when I looked at what they actually did, uh, (laughs) it looked like they did a pretty impressive job. They did do a pretty impressive job. So they went on to describe their activity in a very systematic way. And I have to say... um, keen to talk to Marette uh, a little more at some point because she seems to have a very logical and systematic brain about how she approaches these things and I think that's probably the reason to read this. This isn't uh, sim on a shoestring or drop-in sim. This is sim very carefully planned and very systematically data collected and that's probably the bit that I think is the take-home. So as I said, they have a pretty integrated health system in Alberta and that's the point is made in the paper. They have a pre-existing, quite integrated um, and centrally organised simulation program. And so what they described in terms of their activity around COVID is that they started by getting intake requests and initiating a project. And unsurprisingly, a lot of these initial requests were from critical care units like yours and mine, the kind of places that were thinking we were going to have to be intubating and ventilating COVID patients. But pretty soon they started to get a lot more requests from people who went, hang on, we just have to change a lot of our work processes because we have to protect ourselves from infection and we have to have different workflows. Uh, They also made a curriculum not quite with the matrix that James had, but certainly pretty logical one where they developed some scenarios that they could easily distribute around across their whole integrated system uh, and in doing so covered off on, you know, people having to write them for themselves. And one of the things that was really quite interesting is their systematic approach to the kind of simulation that they did, Ben. Uh, so they certainly didn't just drop in with a mannequin and start doing sim. And the three things that they, the three methods that they describe are surge planning and tabletop debriefing, process walkthrough and environmental scans, 
And thirdly, rapid cycle simulation and debriefing. And certainly in the literature I've read, people are doing a lot of that third one, but probably should be doing more of the first two. So to give you some idea, um, they might do a tabletop exercise for looking at a hospital's emergency response operational plan for bed capacity. And that's not you're not going to do that with a mannequin. That really is best done with a tabletop exercise. But then you might do a process walkthrough for looking for new processes for taking a COVID stroke patient from CT uh, up to interventional radiology. Well, then you might do your rapid cycle simulation and debriefing if you're applying the COVID-19 medical management to complex medical scenario like a cardiac arrest or deteriorating patient. And so I think this just very logical structure was one of the things that um, – came uh, forward to me. And then, as I said, maybe the last thing in their design that was so impressive is the ability to collect and analyse data as they went. And literally thousands and thousands of data points from the people who were conducting these simulations were brought in centrally, reviewed, systematically processed and then subjected even to a thematic analysis to sort of think about what were they finding out. So in this way, uh, I've lost count of the numbers, but there were literally tens of thousands of healthcare staff who participated in their simulations in one way or another. So before I go to their themes, Ben, any reflections other than merely being impressed? Well, I think it... It was just a paper that sort of oozed credibility and, uh, as you said, a clarity of thought regarding simulation design and the right tool for the right purpose. Um, And I remember when we sort of quote David Gabba's original quote about Sim, I think in your first episode of Simulcast, you know, this in many ways is just this sort of incredibly mature evolution of that concept. And I think, I think the paper overall highlights the value of having a developmentally mature pre-existing and very sophisticated simulation network pre-pandemic and how when it's run effectively from the top down with some very smart thought, it allows for some rapid evolution in the right moment. As you say, one of the key things here is you can't just turn this on when the pandemic is on your doorstep. And look, uh, again, the themes, maybe some of them aren't surprising if you've been doing some of these COVID simulations, simple things like uh, safe doffing, doing environmental scans, working out transport routes, working out good ways of communication um, to isolation rooms. They're familiar, but as I said, these just very nicely, nicely codified. So I think it's a bit of a must read for people interested in process simulation. Yeah, it was really awe-inspiring for me. I felt very humbled reading this paper, uh, and not just from the volume that they achieved, but the, the sophistication of the the process. Um, I loved some of the points they were sort of repeatedly highlighted about, you know, making sure that the information that's being shared is not so hospital-specific that it can't be generalised or used in other services, and it felt like that point came up repeatedly in the article. They're really looking for stuff that was generalisable enough that it was of use to their broader community within that service. And I appreciated that they sort of, because they had that huge sample size, they actually described reaching a feedback saturation point. Yeah, and they had an effector limb. It's one thing just to discover all these uh, latent safety threats and send them off to someone, but they actually had connections sufficiently with the health service to make something of it. Mm. It's like if you got asked the circular question of what does a 
perfectly designed <laughs> pandemic response through simulation look like? You could just kind of point to this paper. Yes, exactly. You're right. listening to Simulcast. All right, well, we're going to go on to our next one. Speaking of perfect papers with excellent authors, uh, here's one that you've been involved with, Ben. So our next paper is also from Advances in Simulation from Adam Cheng and colleagues, uh, A Practical Guide to Virtual Debriefings, Communities of Inquiry Perspective. So uh, this paper really, again, starts with a little bit of a COVID-like introduction in that we're now having a lot of need for virtual group learning and specifically debriefing. And uh, the departure point for this paper is we need a bit of guidance about how we should do that because there isn't just a simple translation of sitting around uh, on our chairs in person to a uh, debriefing situation virtually. and. As we've come to expect from someone like uh, Adam Cheng and the co-authors here, there's been a search for a conceptual framework to guide the principles by which we should do this. And it's a communities of inquiry framework. Now, Ben, um, I could run through this, but I'm just reading what it says in the paper. Did you, you obviously would have got a few insights as to why you chose that and uh, what it means? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it was a slightly iterative process in that there was some initial brainstorming as well, and then some discovery of the community's inquiry framework, and then some adaptation of that to fit the needs of the paper. So in particular, sort of defining uh, the communities of inquiry under three different pillars, uh, which we've defined as educator presence, cognitive presence, and social presence. Uh, and so if I sort of if I think about that in terms of my more simplistic brain, then I guess my thoughts would be, you know, how is the group of learners and facilitators engaging together in a sort of social level, uh, as well as how real are they being in terms of how much of their true selves are they putting out into the online space? Uh in terms of cognitive presence, what is the level of sort of sophistication and thought that's going on about the actual clinical problem and understanding and critical discourse? And then uh, thirdly, what is the educator bringing in terms of the educator presence and the role both in curricular structure but also in facilitation pre-briefing and uh, conversational facilitation uh, throughout that discussion? And I do think that's a really useful framework uh, in my head, not just when I'm thinking about virtual debriefings, but I think also in terms of any kind of community of practice online where I start thinking it's not just about getting a good curriculum. All of those three presences are really interrelated. And if I can't get people socializing and if I can't get people thinking and if it's not structured and facilitated at some level, then I'm not really optimizing that online learning in any format really. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is really nicely described. Uh, and systematically, the paper then goes through what are the barriers to these three kinds of presence and what might be the strategies to overcome. And some of them are very practical. Uh, I didn't realize that muting, for instance, on a virtual platform removes the so-called brief utterances where you go, hmm, uh-huh, hmm and which is normally very encouraging for a social presence and whereas just being on mute is actually uh, very lonely and it I went 
I had a bit of an aha moment when I read that. I went, that is so true. So some of these things are really quite mm. practical and quite uh, specific as well as the broader brush strokes. And I think the other thing I like is it says don't abandon what you're doing. And, in fact, many of the same principles are there. Don't add too much cognitive load in terms of uh, technology if that's going to actually detract from your educator presence. No, I think, yeah, I think there's some very useful practical things. And I think uh, the paper is quite good at also harnessing pre-existing skills, but just highlighting which ones might translate best. And in particular to me, uh, certainly from a facilitation perspective, uh, a lot of almost turning up the volume on your verbal explicitness, on the explicitness of what you're thinking and, and transparency of that, but also role modeling fallibility and, and validating other people's comments, which to me certainly struck home or familiar based on facilitating the journal club in that uh, in, in particularly when you are moving to an entirely text-based format then uh, you kind of have to dial up uh, your signal and and filter it for misinterpretation uh, and so there's a lot of sort of explicit I am grateful for this type phrasing uh, which hopefully is both validating but also clear yeah, I agree. And I think one of the take-homes that I've had is not just from this paper, but in thinking about our new way of interacting is to have much more explicit conversational scripting as well with co-facilitators, etc. Um, but of course, it also means one thing I was sorry they didn't mention in the paper was the need to spend a lot of money on lights like I've got here, expensive new webcams, I mean, they missed out on some of the obvious opportunities that we've got with virtual. <laughs> so for those of you at home, I'm currently looking at a, a beautifully crystal clear 4K 3D surround sound <laughs> image of Vic Brazel on her latest uh, tech rig. And then she's got sort of a smudged microscope slash 8-bit image being being from my laptop so there is some uh, technological disparity at play yeah if only there was something to look at with all that technology ben <laughs> all right we better move on to the next uh, the next paper the, well, the last paper really is just so much fun and I just had to put this in and I'll tell you that uh, I do owe the tip-off for this to Chris Nixon who I think had the idea to publish this well before these people did but he just never got around to it. So this is a short report in BMJ Stell about interprofessional team working uh, being practised and encouraged and reflected upon through a virtual reality bomb diffusing simulator and I warn you now Ben I have played this with my educator group and it's a winner. So the title of the paper is Initial Evaluation of a Virtual Reality Bomb Diffusing Simulator for Development of Undergraduate Healthcare Student Communication and Teamwork Skills. And this is by Lawrence Tidbury and colleagues uh, from Liverpool. And you know, they give us their background some pretty obvious stuff. Communication and teamwork is important. Uh, but learning this or teaching this to students can sometimes be difficult to engage them. Now, here is back to that reference about just call every talk sex and airway emergencies, particularly if it's about interprofessional communication because it's your only chance. Uh, but I now have another method by which you can use. So this group, and I take my hat off to them because to get a publication out of getting five students to play a game is a pretty 
impressive act. But this is exactly what they did. They had an interprofessional group of students who engaged in a game called Keep Talking and Nobody Explodes. And just so you know, this is an app or website that you can uh, download a bomb simulator. So you've got a little visual and I did it on my iPad and you give one individual or team this bomb to diffuse and it's got little pictures of wires and it's got buttons to press in a certain order and you can flip it around while the other group gets the manual. And that might sound pretty simple, but it's about 16 pages of densely typed stuff and it's pretty hard to know where to start. And so the group with the manual are then put together with the group with the bomb and they can't see what each other can see and they're asked to solve it in five minutes as the bomb counts down. So as you might imagine, there are so many interesting uh, lessons to be learned about the way people communicate with each other, the specificity of that communication, the sharing of mental models, the ideas about role allocations, uh, with the time pressure and cognitive load that you get in any important tasks that you might need to do. And we did this with our educated group, as I said, and A, it was fun, but it brought out all of those things. So I'm not at all surprised that it was a useful thing to do. Now, I don't think anyone's pretending that's all you need to do for interprofessional learning, but uh, I thought this was a great example of serious games for healthcare education. I agreed, and I I had a quick look through the manual and it's just gloriously discombobulating. Like, <laughs> like oh, that Machiavellian star, whoever wrote it, I just, I salute you and I quietly fear you because it's, it's just the work of an evil genius. And uh, I think it would be a lot of fun to play in terms of it being an article of literature. I guess my, my wish was that there was a bit more specifics about what actually came out of it beyond communicate better in that uh i think as with a lot of communication teaching it lumped soft skills as one sort of achievable thing uh so i would love to know in your meeting what did you find people learn what came out of it i think this is pretty interesting because i was actually thinking about using this as a faculty development master debriefing practice exercise because i think that's one of the things that it brings out uh, but what were the things that we had Well, for a start, I asked for volunteers and I couldn't make this stereotyping up, but our obstetrician said, I'll defuse the bomb and our anaesthetist said, I'll take the manual. So already we had a bit of a setup. It was really interesting how much each described to each other. And I think on reflection, they would have described much more about what the challenge was they had in front of them because both of them sort of took off making many more assumptions about what the other knew about either the manual or the bomb before they started talking. And I guess that's just kind of human nature. You can't imagine that people can't see things the way that you see things. So to my mind, that's probably the biggest take-home message. And then, of course, the mechanics of the communication and how specific people got about the numbers of yellow wires and the symbol that looks like a pitchfork versus an epsilon and if people had a shared understanding even of what visual images looked like. So some of those specificity in communication was there too. Uh, The person who had the manual, I think, potentially made a bit of a fatal error by distributing amongst five people, thinking that they could all read a little bit of it, but that just led to even more (laughs) difficulty of communication within the sub-team that had the manual. (laughs) So I think there'd be endless mileage for uh, how you could use this exercise as a faculty development activity as well as how you may use it as a uh, fun thing to do, I think, with any team that you were trying to engage in some of the conversations about teamwork behaviours. And and how many people died? Uh, 
they didn't defuse the bomb in time, put it like that. Uh, they'll be in good company if I ever do that, looking at that manual. But that's half the fun, surely. Yeah. I wonder if they've got a, have they got like a, um, like a bit all time best score? I wonder if they've got that somewhere. Oh, of how fast people can do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. And, you know, like all those games, they usually have the uh, tips and hacks somewhere that you can find them, can't they, yeah. how to get to the next level up? Not that I play many yeah. computer games or anything not, not like going that. Down but... left, right, left, right, yep. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I love that idea as a, of it being a faculty development exercise as well because it w- you would have to be very specific about what you're pulling out rather than just so you you know, it all comes down to closed-loop communication. To yeah, exactly. It, it really is a good exercise. And how do you pull out what Jesse would call parent issues? How do you give examples? How do you explore people's frames for approaching the, the task? And then how do you translate that back to a healthcare context? So really interesting. Uh, yeah, so just a reminder, if you actually want to look at the paper, you can do that in BMJ Stell this month. But if you want to actually get a hold of the game, just go and Google Keep Talking and Nobody Explodes. You're listening to Simulcast. Ben, you must want to tell us about the paper for next month. I'm sure the people are dying to hear. So the uh, next month we are uh, moving back to deception. And this is... A little bit like the fact I mentioned it was the fourth anniversary. I think our second or third paper that we ever looked at um, was uh, a discussion of deception in simulation, but that has reached a, a higher level of maturity now with the publication of Guidelines for the Responsible Use of Deception in Simulation, Ethical and Educational Considerations uh, by Aaron Calhoun et al., and published uh, very recently in Simulation in Healthcare. So I think that will be a good month of some fun discussion. Yeah, I have had a sneak preview of that article and there's plenty of interesting topics for us to dive into there, Ben, so looking forward to it. So just a reminder for Simulcast listeners, uh, if you want to have a look at the summary from this month uh, or the links to the papers we've been talking about, go along to www.simulationpodcast.com. Also there you'll see that Ben has recently posted one of the talks that he gave at uh, the APLS conference uh, entitled Simulation Self-Sabotage. So that's a lovely listen as well if you want to go along and listen to that. And uh, feel free to rate us on iTunes if that's how you get your podcast as well. But with that, we better say farewell, Ben. Lovely to chat with you again. Absolutely. I'll see you next month. You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation.